Today on episode 369 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Bonnie and I give some advice to a new professor. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Stahoviak. I'm Bonnie's husband, and she uh, suggested that I might want to step into the host spot today on the podcast to ask a few questions about an email that came in from a new professor and thinking about this coming academic year. And so we did a bit of thinking and putting our heads together on what would be the advice that Bonnie would have for someone coming into a new role coming into a new academic year and where we may start. So I'm going to ask the questions today, Bonnie, or turn the tables on you a bit, and maybe I'll maybe I'll jump in with a few ideas here as well. So welcome to your own show. Why, thank you. <laughs> it's so great to be here. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump right in. So you got an email from someone who had a few just general questions coming into a new academic year, uh, full-time professor, first time. Uh, wh- what what would be the things I'd want to be thinking about or starting about? So the first thing that probably is a good starting point is just intentions. And when you think about intentions going into a new position like this, Bonnie, why is it important to know intentions going in? Anytime that we go into a new role, I think it's really important for us to reflect what is our mission What's the purpose? Why are we taking this role? What's going to be important to us? Many of you probably already did that in the form of some sort of an essay about your teaching philosophy. And if you did that, I would encourage you to go back and revisit it. Why are you doing this? And to me, a lot of that has to do with who is it that I serve? And thinking about something that Kevin Gannon, who's written a book about hope, a radical hope in his own teaching talks about is that students aren't our adversaries. And I'd encourage you to remember that as well and to avoid ascribing intent around things. In fact, if you're going to ascribe intent, it might as well be a positive one. So someone shows up late to your class rather than assuming that they were irresponsible, didn't care about getting there on time that they had intended on being there, but something caused them to be waylaid. So I would just really watch for that in terms of how you frame why you took this job, what your key fundamental purpose is in doing it, what makes it meaningful, what makes it significant, and to avoid ascribing intent to students when things happen that may look a certain way to you, but you may not have enough information yet. And I have now been teaching almost 20 years and I still have to fight that urge sometimes, but I'm better at it than when I began. I know you think a lot about transparency in teaching, Bonnie. Uh, What are some ways that professors, particularly new faculty coming in, can be transparent in their teaching? I think it's important in two areas. One would just be in what we talk about with students in terms of our teaching. 
And this to me has been surprising that, I mean, it's, it's surprising that it's surprising to me. Can I say that, Dave? <laughs> In that sure. the research talks about that us saying that we believe in our students actually matters. So we know from some of the research around self-efficacy that it matters that students believe in themselves. That's a really big component of one's ability to thrive in their education. But it actually matters what professors think as well. And so wanting to not just believe that, but also to share it in transparent ways. I care about your success and I believe in you. And that can be hard to do because you don't want to say it and not believe it. (laughs) So we also have to be finding ways in our teaching of being able to tap into people's strengths, to tap into their unique context and be able to draw that into our teaching. But that's an important thing. And then secondarily, when we're creating assessments. There's a great organization called the Transparency in Learning and Teaching, otherwise known as TILT. That project helps us be able to create assignments that have relevance and then be transparent about them. And so for me, every single assignment inside of our learning management system, as I describe it, I talk about what is the assignment? What is it that they're going to be expected to do? Why? Why is it relevant? Why am I having them do it? And then how? How did they go about doing it? So in your teaching, make sure that you're supporting that self-efficacy because it matters so much. And in your assessment, make sure you're transparent about the what, the why, and the how. Talk about the importance of patience in settling into a class and the importance of being patient and setting norms. Oh, gosh, this is so important. (laughs) I have to go back to my first time teaching, Dave. I was an adjunct and I didn't know any of the norms. And so I just I thought it was like my college experience. So I'm, hey, everybody, go ahead and take your textbooks out and put them on the table. No, I think maybe one person might have had their textbook, but let's just say it wasn't a norm to do that. And so Even though all this time I've been teaching all these years, you still have to establish norms. Even if you have some of the same students in your class, it's a new class. It's a different dynamic. So I find we need to be patient in setting some norms. And one episode, Dave, that we did way back when, I don't know the episode number, but if I had been smart, it would have been episode number eight, because it's something called the eight second rule. Oh, yeah. And this is an episode that we did early on about that in normal contexts, as in inside of a classroom, or if you're facilitating some kind of an experience, you ask a question as the facilitator, or in this case, as the professor, and then you count one, one thousand two, 1,000, three, 1,000, all the way up to eight. You don't do it out loud, by the way. You're, you're doing this in your head. But that gives enough time to have people not only take in your question, make sense of it in their own mind, formulate an answer, and lastly, and I would say most importantly, decide, is it safe for me to give an answer. And so we have to be patient in terms of setting the norm that when I ask a question, 
I'm not doing it rhetorically. I actually really want an answer and I'm keenly interested in what you have to say. And Dave, I don't know if you have found this to be the case, but I definitely have found in an online environment, sometimes my eight seconds actually does go. Because I've said before, like, oh, you hardly ever get above eight unless they know you're doing it. And then they're just trying to mess with your head. (laughs) But I have found in virtual environments that it does actually take, especially early on, more just to set that norm that actually I really do want to hear from you. And so sometimes I've even found myself having to count to more. And by the way, some of this is because I give a choice if people would like to share aloud or if they would like to share in the chat. So sometimes they're actually literally typing an answer. They've already gone through the, is it safe for me to answer here? And speaking of, is it safe for me to answer here? I also give them the option if they would like to share privately or out in public, just depending on what it is I'm asking, in case it's something that requires a more personal answer. Yeah, so many people are uncomfortable with silence. And I think if we're in the role as professor facilitator, as both you and I have been many times, Bonnie, that we sometimes are most uncomfortable with that. Like if there's silence in the room for five seconds or eight seconds, we feel like somehow we're doing something wrong. And that sometimes can be the best way to allow people to think about something, to allow those who may not jump into the conversation as quickly, for those who are more introverted like me, who, who may not jump in right away, to have the space to be able to think a bit quietly. And, and I, I often, I'll sometimes call attention to that, and I facilitate a lot online, and if there will be silence i'll go the eight or nine seconds and just wait to see what someone says and sometimes i'll say you know we all need more silence in the world don't we in order to spend some time thinking and then people kind of nod and then someone will say something and once you've done that a couple of times and you create a norm with the group or with the class in this case that a little bit of silence is okay once in a while that's not a bad thing we can take time to think (laughs) which we all need to do more of i actually use that as a teaching point as well as you know part of being a critical thinker is to actually stop and think and to consider your thoughts and to consider different ways. You're not going to do that entirely in eight seconds, but just to start to think about learning as not just a lecture or conversation or I'm reading, like I can actually stop and spend some time to think. And establishing that as a bit of a norm in a classroom, I think it's a wonderful place to begin from. Another aspect of this patience for me is the patience to frame things as invitations, not as restrictions. A classic example of this pre-COVID was the laptop bans. And this tended to be treated in a very dichotomous way. There were people who said, you know, have them all close the laptop, never could use a laptop in the class. Or people who said 100% of the time, let's have those laptops open and I come down in the place that James Lang talks about in his book called Distracted, in that we can actually invite people. I'm going to have you go ahead and close down laptops, put away the phones, and I'm going to give you a sticky note. And I'd like you to think about one way that, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then I'm going to invite you actually to open up your laptops or take your phones out because I've got some poll questions for you. That invitation, now we're going to do this. Okay, take this out, put that away in a very playful, fun way. It's an invitation. We're going to do something fun. All right, we're going to play a game. And 
that to me is much more conducive to the kind of learning community that I want to create. And is it going to be possible that 100% of the time I get compliance? Probably not. And by the way, post COVID, what it that transitioned into rather quickly, by the way, was whether or not we were going to require cameras. And we could spend, you know, three whole episodes just talking about whether or not to require cameras. I think a similar thing can play out there in that I invite you to turn on your cameras because I love to be able to have us be able to see each other as we're talking, but not belabor it. If people don't, there are legitimate reasons why people can't, whether it's bandwidth issues or don't want to. And again, we could do an entire episode on this thing. I I more want us to be thinking in general rather than a bunch of rules and legalism in our classes. Wouldn't it be way more conducive to learning if we could engage people through invitations. So, and then the last one I wanted to mention is similar in that we can co-create an inclusive climate. So rather than thinking about as me, I came today to cover a bunch of information. Anytime in my teaching or as I observe others teaching that we're covering information, that's generally a sign that very one-way thought processes are happening around learning takes place with an expert dumping information into non-experts heads. And my hope would be we could recognize that regardless of the expertise of the people, we always have something that we can learn anytime a group of people get together. So thinking about the ways that we can be co-creating a space where everyone can show up with their full identities and feel safe in doing so, feel safe in taking risks, feel safe in failing. One of the past guests, Robert Bjork, who runs a memory lab with his wife up at the University of California, Los Angeles, he talks about forgetting is the friend of learning. And that's something that I share with students. And uh, not surprisingly, I sometimes forget things and they think I'm trying to prove a point, but it actually just happens naturally for me that I might forget stuff and help everyone feel like we can have an inclusive place where people can show up in their full selves. Could I thread two things together, Bonnie? You just mentioned us thinking about showing up with different mediums. I think that all of us have a, when we get in front of a classroom or group, we tend to have an area for us that's a a bit more of a strength. And we tend to lean in on that more. And sometimes we forget to show up in a different way. One of the things I learned as a Carnegie instructor was to change up the medium every 10 or 15 minutes if you can. So if you're a natural lecturer, that you also bring in some group participation or working in pairs. If you are someone who tends to be more of a natural facilitator, that maybe you spend a little bit more time lecturing. Or as Bonnie mentioned, bringing in technology. And changing that up inside of a class, whether that class is 40 minutes or that class is three hours, and especially if it's longer, I think it's really helpful of keeping people's attention and appealing to interest. And I'm thinking about what you said about laptops, Bonnie, wherever you fall down on that. You and I went to grad school in the era where the message was sort of like, the more computers inside one room we can get, the better, right? Like everyone have a laptop. The Laptops are always helpful. And the times that you and I tuned out in a classroom and ended up doing something else on our laptop that wasn't related to the class, 
I think for me at least, are the times that the instructor relied only on one medium. Either they showed up and they only lectured for 45 minutes, or they showed up and there were three classes in a row of student presentations where you're going again and again and again of, of the same medium over and over. And I think that that is an opportunity for all of us to stretch a bit, whatever our comfort zone is on how we teach, interact, of being willing to try something out and, and even to say, hey, you know, we're trying out something different today. We haven't done this before in the class. I think a, it, it's a great opportunity for a new faculty member to come in and just give yourself permission to try out some new things. And if it works, great, great. And if it doesn't, that's okay. You know, as Bonnie said, you know, part of this is failure. And I think we give a great gift to our students if we also show them that we're struggling with things occasionally too. And that normalizes failure and learning and the struggle as part of the process for all of us. That's actually a perfect segue, Dave, into this next area of how do we get learners to pay attention? And I very carefully now have tried to stop phrasing things as getting someone to pay attention. Somebody pointed out, I can't remember if it was Twitter or something like that, that when we say pay attention, it's like, not only do I need you to focus on me, but it's going to, you're going to have to pay for it too. You know, just that, just the, that expression has a, a unique paradigm to it. And in the book Distracted by James Lang, which I referenced earlier, he really talks about this. There's some overlap to this last area we were just talking about of not expecting the ridiculous notion that people ever could pay attention and not be distracted 100% of the time. So it really is an ebb and a flow. And how do you bring people back? Well, just like Dave just talked about, changing things up. So if you are going to use a PowerPoint, then some of the times blank your screen. If you can literally press the B key in most slide deck software and that will blank it out. Or if you want to then show a quick video clip that you've been talking for a while, you can change it up by showing a quick video. Is it a comic? Is it a GIF? Something that will change it up. And by the way, it's important when we talk about this, this relates to a body of research about cognitive load. We are changing it up, but we can't constantly be changing it up with things that don't relate to what we're talking about. So it does have to be that whatever cartoon it is that you just showed, because you're going to try to bring some laughter in. It can't just be a random cartoon that doesn't relate to what you're talking about. They do need to be in relation to each other. But that, okay, now I'm not showing the PowerPoint. Now we're talking. Now I'm going to ask some questions. Now I'm going to do a poll. Now I'm going to ask you to predict. That's another thing, by the way, that shows up in the literature. What do you think is going to happen next? I've talked a number of times, Dave, about this podcast that I still absolutely love. It's a Planet Money episode where they're talking about a currency crisis in Brazil. Mm. And it really, to me, brings up issues of price stability and most of us in the United States aren't really familiar with what that really would look like. Like in the in the news recently, there's been things around inflation. And I'm sure people that lived through the currency crisis in Brazil that I'm referring to would laugh at like, oh, my gosh, that's nothing. You know what? Something the money that you had would something a pair of jeans would cost, you know, $50 one day and $500 the next day, that that kind of price instability. So anyway, they it's a story 
that they tell in audio form about bringing together these economists to help solve this problem, I pause it halfway through. And I say, now you've heard about what it was like where literally people are going through changing prices, you know, one right after the other because they're changing that quickly in a grocery store, I think the example is. So then pressing pause, if you're one of those economists that has to come in, how would you go about solving this problem? Or what would you recommend to the government that they do? And that act of prediction, even if you're wrong, the act of prediction actually helps to solidify the learning once you find out what the right answer was or, or that kind of thing. So that can be really effective. And then we've had many episodes about something called retrieval practice, where instead of spending so much of time and effort pouring information into the minds of students, we can instead invite them to retrieve the knowledge as it is growing in their own neural networks inside their brains to, to go through regularly what's called retrieval practice. And I'll have a bunch of links in the show notes that people can reference. If you're not familiar with retrieval practice, how would you go about doing it, as well as an excellent website that can help get you started. So much of higher education is about learning. And I know so many in uh, your listening community, Bonnie, have a real heart for reading. And I know new faculty members do as well. If you were going to recommend a couple of books that would be a good starting point for a new faculty member. What comes up for you? If it is past August or or it's in August of 2021, when you're listening, then I want you to go to wherever you purchase your books and look up Small Teaching by James Lang, the second edition, because Dave, he's coming out with the second edition of Small Teaching. I have not read it yet, but will be shortly, and I'm excited for all the new editions. By the way, the first one is still an excellent read as well, but but just because it's coming out so soon after this episode airs, you might want to hold off a couple, two, three weeks before you listen and, and check out Small Teaching. The idea behind Small Teaching is that rather than think we have to create the equivalent of a motion picture, you know, a big budget motion picture, that there are incredibly small things that we can do that are like a fulcrum that help to facilitate learning. And so that's, I've mentioned his techniques a number of times. He talks about retrieval practice in the book. He talks about prediction. He talks about this idea of changing things up, et cetera. So lots of ideas in there, very practical things that people can do. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I cannot recommend it enough. And then the next one, if you have a little bit more experience teaching coming into your first, perhaps full-time job, I really recommend The Skillful Teacher by Stephen Brookfield. It also has gone through a couple of different versions as well. Stephen is such a gifted person at thinking reflectively about his own teaching and doing so in just incredible ways and then modeling that for us and telling us how we can do that. I I definitely recommend that resource too. Those are those are two books that I have revisited time and time again that have benefited me incredibly in my teaching. I'm very grateful to both of those authors. Can I add in a third recommendation? Whoa, uh, as whoa. Well? No, I think we're limited to two today. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Uh, there's a super smart lady named Bonnie Stahoviak wrote mm. a book called The Productive Online and Offline Professor. And I'm thinking about your book, Bonnie, because I recall when you went through your first year teaching full-time, and I'm also thinking about some of your colleagues that have come on board in recent years, and it is, it's really overwhelming. 
I mean, any new job is overwhelming initially, but a lot of times coming into a university in the first full-time role, I, I don't know, it's just so different than other kinds of jobs in that you are, on one hand, very independent in what you are doing within the classroom, and especially if you come from another discipline uh, or another industry where you're used to having a boss who's working with you and onboarding you on, on doing lots of things um, within an organization, coming into a classroom and teaching with a, however many number of students is often very overwhelming at the beginning because you don't get as much direction. And even if you're coming from graduate studies and coming in for the first time, a lot of times, you know, master's programs, PhD programs are highly structured. There's a syllabus, there's a curriculum you follow, and all of a sudden you show up in in the teaching world and you have a lot of flexibility and independence. And then there's the other part of that, which is there's a whole community part of service to the institution that I think is really unique and unfamiliar to new faculty members when they come in and like, oh, I'm going to be sitting on committees. I'm going to be doing university-related activities that I really never received any training on or really gotten a lot of advice on how do I, how do, I do this, how do I uh, navigate committee assignments, all those kinds of things. And so all that to say is it's a time where there's a lot of complexity and newness. And so being able to think about how you handle your scheduling, your time management, your task management. Um, Bonnie, you do a really great job in your book of really illuminating lots of different ways to think about that well, to handle a time where there's a lot of complexity, and to establish systems for yourself where you can process a lot of that coming in. It's still going to be overwhelming a bit, right? Like any of us going into a new role. But I think that it, if you've got some good, solid systems coming in and to your point earlier, Bonnie, maybe just start with something small, right? If you haven't used a time management system before, maybe that's the thing to start with. Or if you don't have a task management system, start there. Or if you don't tend to plan out your weeks, maybe you begin to do that a bit. You know, Pick one thing from the book and it will inevitably support you in making that transition easier and help you to be successful stepping into the role and, and learning faster than you might otherwise. Thanks for mentioning the book, Dave. As you are aware, we just got back from uh, this next word is going to be said in air quotes, camping with in air quotes <laughs> uh, with our kids at, at a wonderful spot down in San Diego. And I, you know, throughout the pandemic, I have not achieved a perfect record on maintaining even the productivity systems that I write about in that very book. But I can tell you, even just having a foundation of knowing what to do when things get overwhelming and having a trusted system that at least, at the very least, Dave, when I know something has a date associated with it, a due date, that's in there. I'm going to get an alert that's going to say that something's due then. And part of that, by the way, is not putting due dates for things that don't really have them. So a system that I trust to have the information in there that is going to let me know and, and keep from going off the rails. So anyway, I mentioned the camping because we're coming back and we're recording today, <laughs> the day that we got back um, so that we can catch up on a few things. But it's nice even just to step into those trusted systems that are talked about in the book. To step back in feels way more peaceful than I think vacations before I really knew a lot about those kinds of systems and, and practice them. So thank you for mentioning that. 
Yeah, of course. And speaking of productivity tools, before we get to the recommendations segment, I did want to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. Normally, I do these ad rolls by myself, but since Dave is here and is also a Text Expander user, uh, let me first explain what Text Expander is, and then I'm going to invite him to share one of the ways he uses it. I know we use it on a daily basis, both of us. But so Text Expander is what is known as a text expansion tool. So you type in pre defined little things they call snippets and you get to decide what that snippet is so that you can more easily remember it. So my signatures are always around the letter X and then VU if it's my Vanguard and then SIG as in signature and then in pops the signature for that or X VU phone is my work phone number, which I often don't remember. So, and you can get a lot more sophisticated or keep it really simple. Text Expander is one of those tools I love because it can grow with you. You don't have to learn a bunch just to get started using it. But boy, the more that you learn, the more that you can save even that much more time. So, Dave, what's one way that you use Text Expander? Oh, it's such a fun service to talk about because both of both you and I used it long before they were sponsors. And one application I use is I, I try to think at a big picture. Anytime I find myself doing the same thing or writing the same thing, or the kind of my trigger is if I go back and I find myself copying and pasting old emails, old sent emails that I'm going to send a similar kind of message to someone else, but I want to customize a little bit of it. That tends to be a trigger for me to create a text expander snippet. And so one example is I run online events with our community often, and often I'm thanking an expert or guest speaker who's come in to support us. And so I have a little snippet. Mine, I'd start mine with Z, Bonnie, so I'll type (laughs) Z, CFL, thank. And when I type that in the keyboard, it automatically populates in my form letter, but I'd I hesitate even to say form letter because it types in 90% of it that I want it to be the same for every event. But then it leaves spaces, and I've programmed this in advance, and Text Expander makes this really easy, where you can have spaces where you can fill in the person's name, but you can also create spaces where you fill in other things that are customized. And that for me means that I automate the thing that is repeatable. So I can spend more time on the customization piece. So it's a nice thank you letter each time, and the core elements are always there. And also it's customized each time so that I mentioned something that I really appreciated about that person or something that they said. And so it is both efficient and then it happens quickly, but it's also meaningful and then it's customized to that person because instead of spending the time finding the old one from six weeks ago, finding the email, copy and pasting the whole thing. I just type in the snippet and I can spend my time really doing the thing that shouldn't be automated of really making it customized. And that's just one example of, I, I probably use it, I don't know, a dozen times a day. Bonnie, you probably do too. It's such a wonderful resource. And Bonnie probably has a link for it that I don't know. So I'll hand it back to you, Bonnie. Head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast. That link will also be in the show notes for today's episode. And once again, thanks to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. And this is the part in the show where each of us gets to share our recommendations. My recommendation is themed to today's episode, which is we need to be asking for feedback regularly. And I've got a few articles or models that will help us do that. First off, from Ed Surge. 
why professors should ask students for feedback long before the semester is over. I should mention that I'm pretty good about asking for feedback along the way, but oddly what I'm not good at is really planning that out way in advance. And so I've been doing all of my classes now as high flex learning, which means that it has the kind of flexibility where they can show up for asynchronous session, but they also could have an asynchronous option. I really do need to get ahead of this then and have that feedback built in because if I do that, it's going to be that much more likely that it happens in a timely basis and also that I don't forget to do it or that it turns out to not be a great week because something comes up or whatever. Just having that built in reduces that friction for me. So I'm excited about being better at that this coming academic year. Stephen Brookfield, who I mentioned earlier, the author of over 30 books about teaching in higher education, including the skillful teacher that I mentioned previously, he has what he calls a critical incident questionnaire. And he does it practically every class session for what really had their attention, what really helped heighten their learning, and also kind of the highs and the lows, what didn't work for them that particular session. So he has that tool on his website, which I'll be linking to in the recommendations for this episode. And finally, Gardner Campbell has a similar idea. You may have heard of the nurse with the last name of Apgar who came up with the Apgar test that newborn babies get that assess their health when they are born. And so he talked about what if we had one of those measures for a class session, the health of a class session. And so he's got an idea around that on his blog. I've used Brookfield's methods before. I've used Gardner Campbell's and uh, some gardeners is, is more the one that I use most often in terms of what should we start doing? What should we stop doing? What should we continue doing? The fact is not that there's a perfect method out there. The fact is doing it and then actually incorporating the feedback and both being able to respond to what's emerging in the moment, any trouble spots in a class, that kind of thing, but also over time, how much you can learn when you ask for feedback courageously is really, really a powerful thing in our teaching. So Dave, what do you have to recommend for us today? I have two recommendations. The first one directly related to our conversation today, I had Tom Henschel as a guest on my podcast called Coaching for Leaders. And Tom is a gifted executive coach and a dear friend. He is really an expert at helping people with their communication, and we had an episode on the way to make sense to others. And Tom talked us through the process of what he calls sorting and labeling. How do you sort your ideas effectively and then label them in your communications to others? And I think that this would be especially useful for new faculty thinking about lecturing and the times when you're doing lecturing as part of your classes how you might use a framework like that in order to sort and label in a way that helps something make sense to others, especially others who may not have the same expertise that you do. And so that would be very useful, but also very useful in conversations with colleagues and other faculty and other folks across the institution. So the way to make sense to others with Tom Henschel, I'd recommend. I'll make sure Bonnie gets it in the notes. And then the second one, completely unrelated, Bonnie knows that I have a heart for national parks and for conservation. And we are often uh, trying to get our kids outdoors and appreciating the earth. And, uh, you know, there's so much going on in the world as far as our earth and the environment and climate change that 
at an individual level, many of us do not have a ton of personal control over. Uh, and yet one of the things that I think that we have a lot of control over is the heart um, and care that we instill in our kids uh, and young people in our lives to care about the world. And so a podcast that has come up on my radar screen and I've been listening to for the last year is called The Wild by Chris Morgan. And he's a bear biologist. There's a fancier name for that that I can't remember at the moment, but the show is just this beautiful, beautiful look at each episode at a different animal or a different ecosystem or a different part of the world and conservation efforts and learning about the history and the animals and the wildlife. And um, and it's really, really beautifully done. It is um, out of the NPR affiliate in the Seattle area, KUOW, I believe. And a beautiful show. I love it. And our kids also love it. We listen to it uh, whenever we go down to the, for whatever reason, whenever we go to the beach, <laughs> which is not far from where we live, we listen to the wild episodes. And it's just been a wonderful companion on our journey of learning about environment and conservation and climate change. And so I'd recommend the wild podcast by Chris Morgan. Thanks, Dave, for taking over as host today. And thanks to all of you for listening to today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And if you'd like to receive all of the show notes and some extra goodies too, some quotable words, other recommendations that don't show up in the podcast episodes, I encourage you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. And you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks once again to Text Expander for not only sponsoring today's episode, but for actually saving us time every single day of our computing lives. And uh, thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Bonnie. It was fun. Have a great day, everybody.